We're glad that the uh, Lord's brought us all here today. I know some of you are here for uh, the baptisms, and we're, we're delighted that we can, we can fellowship with you today and sit under the, the word together. Um, you know, I, I have this experience in my life, and I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but uh, usually on Saturday nights and coming into Sunday morning, I, I don't sleep very well, and I actually dream parts of my sermon. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but this morning was particularly weird, okay? And this is actually my introduction. Um, so we have two new twins, right? And, they're, they, and they don't really like to sleep between the hours of 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. They think that's daytime, okay? They think it's time to be wide-eyed and, 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 and want to talk and hang out and stuff. And their way of talking is um, the loudest scream that could come out of six pounds that you've ever heard in your life. And so my wife, Vanessa, uh, just finds these different YouTube clicks, clips that are like three hours long of white noise, and she doesn't use the same one. Well, last night, she found this one of white noise, and it, was, it also had this jet sound in the background. So it had like the normal, but then also had, okay? And I start dreaming about Tony Stark and <laughs> in um, Iron Man. And I start dreaming about Transformers. And the way that this segues into the sermon here is that there's a, there's a word here in the second verse that's the word transfiguration. But in the Greek, it's metamorphosis. Okay, so I'm having this dream of these transformers metamorphosizing because I'm hearing this jet music to try to get my kids to sleep. And by way of segue, we do come to a place in the scriptures today where it says that Jesus was transfigured. It says that he, um, he was changed before his disciples. And this is a very unique place in, in really all the Bible, um, because it's the only time that we ever see Jesus like this. We don't see him like this in the resurrection. We don't see him like this in his earthly ministry. We don't see him like this at the ascension, and we, we certainly don't see him like this at his birth, and the humility of his birth, and we certainly don't see him like this on the cross. But here, and only here, In this one place of the whole Bible, we see Jesus in a very unique kind of way. So we know that God has given us his word for our instruction. And so we're going to take a look at this under three headings and and see what this means. It's not just a a scene for the sake of of, of being awe-inspiring. There's something here for our instruction. So we'll look at it in three headings. We'll look at his person, his mission, and our response. His person his mission, and our response. I'm going to read to us Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. But I'm also going to read to us 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. And the reason I'm going to do that is because Peter, in writing to the churches 30 years after this account or so, recounts this event. And I find it instructive to us to remember that that the, the, the disciples here, that, that Peter and, and John are actually eyewitnesses to this thing. This is a historical event that actually happens. So much so that they, they, they look back on it later in life and, and, and point to this moment as the moment that they saw his majesty 
and his beauty. So Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 13, and then 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that Elijah comes first? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands, And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. We'll go over to 2 Peter. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory... From the Father, God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majesty, majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can see when you speak, you've spoken twice in this gospel, you say the same exact thing. You revel and you delight and you exult in your son. You are well pleased with your son. He is the one in whom is all your delight. And so we pray an awesome prayer this morning that he would become our delight. And we would find all our joy, our happiness, our very lives in him. We pray that you do this through the preaching of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So point one, his person. Now right at the very beginning here, we see that Matthew is he's telling us something very significant about what's about to happen because of what he just says in the first couple words here. In the first couple words here, he says, and after six days. And after six days. And we know that the previous story is where Jesus, excuse me, Jesus has asked Peter for uh, 
to tell him who he is, and he makes the great confession. You are the Christ and the living God. And then a few moments later, Peter is rebuked because he doesn't understand that the Messiah must also be the suffering servant. So six days have now passed. Now, why is that significant? Well, six days is something, is a marker in the scriptures. Yes, it's been six days, but six days is, 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 is a marker in the scriptures for something significant to happen. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, the world was made in six days. You remember in Exodus chapter 24 that Moses waited six days on that mountain for the glory of the Lord to come onto Sinai. So now these six days later, we learn how we have the power of the crucified Christ in our lives. Now, you must remember that when, when God led the people out of slavery in Egypt and he, and he led them and he brought them to himself and he, and he led them through the wilderness, that they were... They were he appeared to them as a, as a glory cloud by day and a cloud of fire by night. He was this, this, this cloud of glory is what led the people Israel out. And this, this majestic, powerful cloud is what was, was, was above them and about them when the sea was parted and it destroyed the entire Egyptian army. And the place where they're at is also massively significant in understanding this passage too. They're up on a mountain. You remember, of course, after God has brought his people out of the land of Egypt and he's brought them to himself, he brings them to the base of a mountain. Exodus chapter 19, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And he took them and they stood in front of the mountain. And the entire Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain greatly trembled. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Lightning, sound of thunder when God speaks, smoke, earthquakes, trembling. It's this majestic, awe-inspiring moment when the glory of God, the majesty, the presence of God comes down on that mountain. But also there's a warning there too. The warning is says, go down Moses and tell them to not even touch the mountain lest they be consumed. And we know that later Moses will ask God in Exodus 33, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy in whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face For man shall not see me and live. Which is why he warned the people at the base of the mountain to not even come near it. He was protecting them from his own power and glory. That's Moses. On the mountain, in the presence of the glory. How about Elijah? You remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 when he's on the run from Jezebel, right? He's just slain all their false gods and their prophets and he's on the run. And it says this in 19.8. 
It says, And Elijah rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the same place that Moses was at. And there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And after a great earthquake and a fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. So these two monumental figures in Israel's history, Moses and Elijah, both meet God on this mountain. And both of them meet him in sort of this awe, awesome, glorious, majestic kind of scene where everything is shaking and so on and so forth and, and loud noise and earthquakes. So where are we now, many years later? We're on a mountain, verse 1. And there's a great cloud again, in verse 5. And there's the voice of God again, in verse 5. And Moses is there, and Elijah is there, verse 3. But what's different this time? I don't just mean that Jesus and the disciples are there. There's something radically different this time. One key difference. The bright glory is now emanating from Jesus Christ himself. The bright glory is coming from this man himself. Verses 1 and 2 say, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Don't miss that. His face was as bright as the sun. If if you stare at the sun for 30 seconds, you, you, you go blind. That's how bright his face was. Don't just miss this as something that's, that's some kind of metaphor. His face was as bright as the sun. And it says that his clothes were light itself. Quite literally in the Greek, it says that his clothes were light itself. That the brilliance and the glory of God is now shining forth from this man, Jesus Christ. And here, the only place in the whole Bible do we get the glimpse of this kind of power and majesty and brightness and light coming from this man. You know that after Moses came down off that mountain in Exodus chapter 34, his face was shining, right? And, and Moses had been talking with God and his, and his face radiated as a result. But this isn't the same thing. That's just a shadow, it's a type. It's a picture, it's a forerunner to this man. Jesus Christ doesn't reflect something here. Jesus Christ isn't a mirror here. He isn't like Moses who reflects something. Jesus is shining this kind of brightness from himself. If Moses is like the moon reflecting the sun, then Jesus is the sun itself. Listen to this. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, when Jesus, one verse later is when Jesus will start his ministry. One verse later, Jesus will say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It says this, quoting from Isaiah, the people are dwelling in darkness and they have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is quite literally the light of the world. This is the one who was promised of old to come and to bring light to the world. People that dwell in darkness, a great light has shined on them. As our brother Andrew read this morning, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He radiates. He radiates from his person, from, his, from, from, from who he is, the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is not a type. He's not a shadow. He's not a sign. He is the exact imprint of, imprint of the nature of God. That means that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory in human form. It means that all of God's importance, his worth, his value, his splendor is in the man, Jesus Christ. The glory of God in human form, the exact representation of God's glory. Paul was saying in Colossians that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the man that Matthew's giving us here. And the Bible couldn't be more clear here. The Bible couldn't be more clear here that Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just another Moses. He's not just another Elijah of these holy men. Jesus is God himself. The glory is not emanating from Moses and Elijah. They're up there. <laughs> They're up there as examples to be like, this, what, what's, what's different in these three, okay? No light, no light, face like the sun. And it's what makes Peter's comment so interesting in verse 4. You know, if there was ever a time in your life when you're probably going to be cautious about what you say, it would be a week after Jesus rebuked you and called you Satan, right? Like, this is the next week, and Peter's got to be like, okay, 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 okay. So he's really cautious. Look it. Lord... It's good that we're here. Right? <laughs> okay, good so far. And if, if you look at Mark's account in chapter 9, I think, it doesn't say this next verse. It says, if you wish, I will make three tents here. Like, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. It doesn't say it in Mark's. Mark just said, let me make three tents for you. But Matthew's making the point that there's some caution here in Peter. Do you want me to make three tents for you here? And, and, and one for you, and, and one for Moses, and one for Elisha. Don't miss verse 5. He was still speaking when behold, he gets interrupted by the Father. <laughs> He's like, I can make you, if you, if you want me to, I can make you a tent. I can make one for Moses. I can make one for Elisha. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what's happening here. <laughs> what am I trying to get across? to us. It means the Father's correcting Peter in a sense. He's saying, Peter, it's not, it's not about Moses. It's not about Elijah. The focus, the purpose, the direction, the point of this whole scene 
is my son. This one is my son, and whom is all my delight. And again, I must geek out a little bit in the Greek here. It is emphatic in saying, this is my true son. It's not he's, he's, he, he's the favorite of all my sons, or he's one of my sons. This is my son. And this is the entire point of everything. If that's true, what the Father's saying, and if it's true that this is the exact imprint of the radiance of the glory of God, what does it mean for us? We're still on point one. Well, it means, I'll just apply it very quickly. It means uh, we need to remember that everyone is looking for meaning in their life. Everyone is, is, is looking for meaning in their life. And we've been doing it since the beginning of, of, of time. And the way that the moderns do it, the way that we do it now, is that we say we need to find ourselves and we need to find our purpose and we need to live that purpose out. And in doing that, we will have meaning and significance in our lives. Well, the, the, the ancients, if you think the Greek philosophers in particular, they thought of it similarly but a bit different. They, they thought that there was a fabric, there was a meaning behind everything. There was a fabric within the cosmos that was sort of the meaning of everything. And that it was attained through a certain kind of living or it was attained uh, through um, uh, a certain kind of behavior. And that they, they believed that after you died, you, you, you entered into it and you kind of became part of this harmonious fabric behind everything called the Logos. But in Christianity, what it means for us is that in Christianity, the meaning of everything... The way to find the meaning of things in your life is not in yourself. It's not in some kind of ethereal fabric behind the cosmos and behind the universe. But the meaning of everything is found in a man. The meaning of everything is found in the man, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The answer to the whole universe is found in a single man, the man Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos. And we're celebrating a baptism today. We're celebrating the baptism of Daniel and Shannon. And it means, what baptism means is that you no longer live for yourself. That you've been crucified with him. In the life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You build your life in him. Your life is now found in him, not in an idea. It's not even found within you. Your life is found in this man, Jesus Christ. So that's who he is. Point one, what did he come to do? Point two, his mission. Well, we already said part of the reason, you might have been wondering why I spent a bit of time in Exodus. Well, it speaks to his mission that we see here. We already said in referencing those previous verses that Moses couldn't see the glory of God and live, right? The people were told to stay back from the mountain lest they be consumed, okay? And 
if this idea is offensive to us, um, let me just try to illustrate that the, the glory of God, you know, destroying people and, and his weightiness, you know, is, it, it would, would consume people. If that's offensive to us, then let's just consider a couple things. One, um, we get this on a, on a much smaller scale, okay? Uh, so we've got the babies. I'm full of these lately, okay? These analogies with the babies, these illustrations with the babies. Um, we got to be really careful. We have, we have a king-sized bed, but we still have to be really careful to, to kind of have the babies in our bed because I'm a really kind of a big dude compared to them. And like one like off roll, I wouldn't even know the stinking difference for there to be like a six-pound marshmallow under my rib cage, right? Okay, so that's not offensive to me <laughs> to know that my weightiness can consume that child. And it's not offensive to you to know that my weightiness might consume that child. Okay, that's a really grave illustration. Um, I got three here, so that one didn't work. Um, I'm trying, John. <laughs> I'm trying, Brooke. <laughs> so you know that feeling? Um, you, you know, we, we've all been around smart people, Okay. But you ever had that feeling when you're around a really, really smart person? I mean, someone you're, and they just, they have this, 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 I can't even say what I'm trying to say. See, I'm not one of those people. So they have this just total recall kind of memory. They remember everything they've ever read. They're so eloquent in their speech. Uh, And you just feel just kind of small in their presence. I remember this one time this happened to me, and I was talking to this, this kind of this professor-type person, and I remember I was trying to engage him, and I started just bumbling these things out of my mouth, and I didn't even know, I thought I, things that I didn't even believe. I just was trying to talk and saying things, and then he was correcting me, saying, you actually think that? And I'm like, well, well, well no, you know, the thing is, uh, otherwise, and so on, and et cetera, and so forth. And, and I couldn't even talk, okay? Point being... Right? You're asking yourself, what is this guy talking about? I think the point is this. <laughs> I think it's this. That that kind of um, difference is actually, um, it's consuming to us. Okay? We can understand that God would say, stay back from the mountain. Because there's, a, there's an inherent danger involved in it. Now, if we're talking about how you, 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 don't, you find, kind of feel repulsed by a very smart person, and we're talking about how, you know, my bigness can squish a baby, and how much more so when we're talking about the eternal glory of God consuming on a sinful people? Okay. I think? A little bit? A little bit? It's like Job. Job 42, he says, I've heard of you. By the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you, and I therefore despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's like Isaiah, when he sees the glory of the Lord, he says, And the fountains of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. We need to be protected from the glory and presence of God. 
because of our sinful state. Job sees it. He sees it's awesome. He sees it's, it's a glimpse of it, and he despises himself. Isaiah sees it. He sees a glimpse of his power and beauty and glory, and he despises himself. Even on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat sits, we read of its construction in Exodus 37, verses 1 to 9. And in the construction of the mercy seat, there are cherubs that are looking at each other and facing each other. And those cherubs are representative of us being protected from the presence and the glory of God, the all-consuming fire that is God himself. You remember when we were cast from the garden in Genesis chapter 3, it was cherubs with flaming swords that protected us from going back in. In a sense, we need to be protected from the glory of God itself. The all-consuming fire that he is, his perfection, it would break out against sinful man. Even built into the, the fabric of the temple, there was courts and inner courts, and the fabric of the temple, there were cherubs, right? Protecting the people from the glory of the Lord, lest it consume them in their sinful state. Okay. So with all that in mind, Now you understand what Peter is saying when he says, let me build you three tents. If the consuming glory of God is now emanating from Jesus Christ, they need to be protected from it. The word there for tent is the Greek word skene, which means means tabernacle. He's in a sense saying, do I need to now construct three tabernacles to, to protect us from the glory of the Lord? Because you told Moses that if we see your glory, we're going to die. And you didn't even pass before Elisha on Horeb. So here we are again. Do we need some tents here? Some cherubs of sorts to protect us from you breaking out against us? They say so. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. They fell on their faces and they were terrified. Why were they terrified? They were sure they were going to die. They were terrified because they were certain that if this kind of glory was on this mountain again, And Moses and Elijah are here, and it's emanating from Jesus Christ. They're like, we are smoke, we're toast, we're dust, we're done. Verse 7 and 8. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's the point. Lift your eyes. See Jesus, the glory is back and it's not consuming you. The glory is coming back into their lives. They're terrified for it. But when they rise, they're still there and they're not dead. They're still there and they're not consumed. They're not consumed. They're not consumed. They're still there. I hope we understand the weight of what has just happened here. At the end of Jesus' life in Matthew 27, we'll read that at his death 
on the cross that the veil in the temple will be torn. That the access to God is no longer marked off. That the presence and glory of God is no longer needing to go through courts and inner courts and sacrifice and, and, and curtains marked with cherubs to protect the people from the glory of the Lord consuming the people. Because the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true tabernacle, the true temple has come. He's said in John's gospel that in three days tear this temple down and I will restore, destroy this temple and I will re- rebuild it in three days. And no one probably knew what he was talking about. But there was no need for this temple anymore. There was no need for the glory of God to consume the people. That Jesus himself would shield us from the danger of the glory of God so that it could become the center and joy of our lives again. That's how you were made to live. You were made to walk with God in the cool of the day. His presence, his glory, his majesty, his splendor being the very center of your life. And it was sin that kept us from it. The New Testament will tell us that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. How can that be? How can it be that, we, that the Holy Spirit, no, it, 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 prior to the work of Jesus, the, the glory of God would consume us. Now it says that the temple's torn, and now it even has the audacity to say that we're the temple where God himself will dwell? How can we get this kind of glory back? How can we be called the temple of the Holy Spirit? And only for one reason, and only one way, because Jesus Christ lost his glory for your sake. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it's right there in our text. You ever meditated on verse 9? As they were coming down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain. If anyone had a right to ascend and go be with the Father as Moses and Elijah just had, it was Jesus Christ. But Jesus goes back down the mountain. He goes back down the mountain. The only man that deserved to not go back down that mountain, because we know where he's headed. He's headed to Jerusalem. He tells us right in this text, I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they did whatever they pleased to him. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. His decision to go back down the mountain was a decision to walk up the hill of Calvary. His decision to walk down the mountain was a decision to suffer at the hands of sinful men. To suffer and die and to lose his glory on the cross so that you and I could get it back. The only man who deserved to not go down would ascend that hill of Calvary carrying his own cross until he was no longer able And he would not ascend it for another transfiguration, but he would ascend it to be murdered, to die, to suffer, to lose it all for your sake. So that his glory 
and the presence of God could come back into your life. So your life is no longer found in yourself. Your life's no longer found in the things of this world. Your life's no longer found in some ethereal fabric behind the mystery of the universe. Your life is now found in this man. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You get meaning and glory back because he lost it for your sake. And that's his mission. That's what he came to do. So what's our response? Number one, listen to him. If what I've just said is true, then it demands an intensely personal response. This is not something to just be trifled with, to to put on and take off, or to consider sometimes. But if it's true that the Son of God suffered and died so that you could get his glory back into your life, then it requires a radically personal response. And the first thing it means is we must listen to him. That's what the Father says. That's what was told in Deuteronomy, that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It shall be to him that you listen. And one of the ways that we listen, and one of the ways that we hear his voice is being committed to his word, being devoted to the scriptures. One of the ways that you get the glory back in your life is by obeying him, by communing with him, by looking at his word every morning when you rise, and seeking to obey all the precepts that he set before you. Listen to this hymn by John Newton, he says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. It becomes our very delight to obey him. Not so that we can somehow ascend to him and be worthy of him. He's already descended and come to us. Now obeying him is simply a means of getting more of him. Obeying him and submitting to the scriptures is a way to just get more of his glory back into your life. To get your life back, actually. And the second thing it means, and I'll close with this, is that this power, this glory, oftentimes comes to us first through darkness. Getting the glory back into your life was the road of the cross for him first. It meant that he must first come down the mountain. It meant that he had to come down the mountain first, off that, 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 that place where glory was, so that he might march to the cross. And if it's true for him, then it's true for us too. At the power, the power of the resurrection, the power of the glory coming back into your life oftentimes means going back down the mountain first. But the resurrection is coming. He triumphed sin, death, and the devil for your sake, and now your life is found in him. So look to him this morning. See him by faith. Trust him. And let's just revel in his glory that he gave back to us freely and graciously. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that the very thing we needed, we could not get for ourselves but you gave it back to us. Before we needed to be guarded with flaming swords and temples and veils and tabernacles from coming into your presence. 
But now your presence is given to us in the man Jesus Christ, in whom is the exact imprint. He radiates the glory of God. Lord, we don't get it. (laughs) We so often don't understand it. We pray that you would make it real to us by faith, by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we celebrate uh, the two ordinances that have been given to the church. Uh, We celebrate a baptism with Daniel and with Shannon. And we also will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And these are two, two signs that have been given to the church. The one shows to us the entrance into this new covenant. That when we were, we were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, that we are now raised to newness of life to now live with him and live with him forever. And that's our, our identifying with Jesus. It's our identifying with his people. It's identifying to the world now that we belong to him and him alone. And then we do it every single week. And we remember the covenant renewal meal. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we remember the ongoing promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. So this morning, it's a wonderful opportunity when we get to do both on the same Sunday. We get to remember how we were brought in and initiated into the covenant, the new covenant. And we get to celebrate our ongoing covenant renewal. So this morning, I'm going to invite uh, Dania and Shannon to come up. And they're going to share with you uh, a testimony. And then we will sing a hymn together while they go back and prepare to be baptized. And then they'll be baptized. And then we will um, celebrate the Lord's Supper together.